Well, good morning, everyone. We will go ahead and get started. Uh, we are uh, in our church information class booklet. We are in section two, entitled What We Confess About God. Last week, we looked at, uh, briefly, we looked at the covenant of communicant membership, those queries that are taken when one becomes a member of the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America. Those of you who already are members, uh, you should remember these queries, uh, or at least one similar. Some, some of us may have uh, taken some slightly different queries because they have uh, changed somewhat over the years. Um, but uh, you, you should remember the covenant of communicant membership if you are, are already a member. And if you are not a member, uh, it's important to know what this covenant of communicant membership is because it is uh, what you are swearing or vowing or taking an oath to uh, before God. Um, as what you believe and what you will do if you uh, do decide to become a member here. Uh, and then after we briefly looked at that, we began to look at each of those queries individually in detail. So we considered query one, do you believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments to be the word of God, the only infallible rule for faith and life? And we considered that last week under the heading of what we confess about the Bible. Uh, and so we looked at the Word of God last week. What is it that we believe concerning the Word of God? And then this week we will move to query number two and uh, speak, uh, speak about what we confess about God himself. Uh, Brian, can I get you to open us in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, Almighty God, Lord, you are holy, you are just, you are standard of goodness. Thank you for bringing us all here today, for giving us another Christian Sabbath. We thank you for granting health, for allowing us to have the privilege of going through this church membership class. Pray that it would be a blessing to our lives. Um, pray that you would help us to know what it is that you require of us, and that we would live godly lives. We ask that you would open our hearts and our minds uh, during this class, and that we would be led by your Holy Spirit. Yes. Amen. Okay. So, uh, section number two. What we confess about God. Um, and remember, uh, as we're going along, uh, write your questions down in your booklet if you have them. Uh, and we will get to questions and comments at the end of the lesson. So query number two. Do you believe in the one living and true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as revealed in his in, in the scriptures do you believe in the one living and true god father son and holy spirit as revealed in the scriptures and so in this session uh we consider the nature of god his attributes his decrees uh, our church teaches the uh, orthodoxy of the ecumenical Christian creeds uh, concerning theology proper, which is the doctrine of God himself. We are Trinitarian. And so we teach uh, the doctrine of the Trinity and we teach uh, that God is sovereign over all things. We believe in the sovereignty of God. That is part of what makes us reformed. And we teach that Jesus Christ is uh, 
appointed mediatorial king with all authority over creation for the sake of his church. So we are Trinitarian. We teach the sovereignty of God over all things. And we teach Christ in his mediatorial kingship. And we see uh, this doctrine of the Trinity. We briefly mentioned it last week. Uh, We see this doctrine of the Trinity throughout scriptures, but the word Trinity is nowhere to be found in scripture. But we do see it. We see it in Matthew 28 and verses 18 and 19. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. So there we see this doctrine of the Trinity, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And these three persons bearing the one divine name, that singular name. The triunity of God comes from the Bible, and it is summarized in our confession of the faith of faith. We are monotheists. We believe that there is only one God. And we see that in Deuteronomy six four, that is the Shema. Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Um, And so we believe in one God. Uh, Oftentimes, uh, Muslims, if you're talking with Muslims, they will use the uh, accusation that uh, we believe in three gods. It's because they don't understand what we actually believe. We don't believe in three gods. We are monotheists. We believe in one God. But we confess the Trinity. We are Trinitarians. And that means not that we believe in three gods, but there are three persons in the one Godhead. Three in one. And we saw that in Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. We also see it in... 1 John 5, 7, uh, I believe I mentioned that last week. For there are three uh, which bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. So we confess that we believe that God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, in one uh, being, in one Godhead. We confess that these three persons are the same in substance and equal in power and in glory. Same in in substance, equal in power and in glory. And we see that in John chapter 10 in verse 30, where Christ says, I and my Father are one. I and my Father are one. We confess that these truths come from the Bible. They're not something that was created through philosophy. They're not something that was Created through uh, man's invention. These truths are in the scripture. And that's why we confess them. Now we recognize that the word Trinity is a later development which uh, accurately uh, conveys the truths that Scripture teaches, but the truths themselves are not a later development. They are found in the Scripture. 
And uh, today, sadly, the Trinity is sorely neglected by the contemporary church, and it's heavily under attack. Uh, very few, even evangelical uh, churches, teach on the doctrine of the Trinity. And I can almost understand why. It's a little difficult to wrap your mind around. We don't understand the concept of how three persons can be in the same singular Godhead. It's hard for us to understand because we are finite. We are creation. And we don't fully understand the infinite. We don't fully understand the Creator. So I can somewhat understand why people are hesitant to teach on it. But you know who's not hesitant to teach on it, or actually to teach against it? It's the heretics. So if the evangelicals are going to be hesitant to teach on the doctrine of the Trinity, but the heretics are not going to be hesitant to teach against it, then it's no wonder that people are leaving the true Christian faith because of the attacks of heretics. And so how do we counter the attacks of heretics? By teaching the truth. And so that's why it's important for us to know this. We must understand the Trinity because it is the foundation for the Christian belief. You cannot be a Christian and not be Trinitarian. Flat out. So what are some of the very heretics teaching against it? Yeah, so uh, oneness Pentecostals. Uh, they, they don't believe in the Trinity. They are modalist in their uh, understanding. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe in the Trinity. Mormons do not believe in the Trinity. Um, many word of faith, prosperity gospel preachers don't believe in the Trinity. Uh, some of the most well-known of the prosperity gospel preachers are modalists. Uh, if you remember your church history, modalism is the heresy that uh, there are not three persons of the Trinity, but one singular person. And he expresses himself in three different ways at different times. It's basically God is putting on a hat and playing a role. Uh, so, you know, at creation, he puts on his father hat and he creates the world. At uh, redemption, he puts on his son hat and uh, sacrifices himself on the cross. And in uh, applying salvation, he puts on the Holy Spirit hat and does that. Um, that's heresy. That's modalism. Um, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, they would fall under the category of Arianism. Uh, Arianism is the, the teaching that Jesus was not God who was a created uh, being. And so th those are some of the heretics who claim Christianity or Christianity adjacent uh, religions. Um, and then of course you got Muslims as well who would claim to be in the same line of faith uh, through Abraham, but they would deny the Trinity. Um, a, good, a good book to uh, look at in regards to this topic is the book Simply Trinity by Matthew Barrett. Uh, it's a good overview. Um, I, I would also, on, on any of these doctrines, uh, I would recommend Francis Turretin's Institutes of Elinctic Theology, uh, the whatever section we are on. So this is the section about God. 
uh, read Francis Turretin's section about theology proper, about God. Um, and, and that Francis Turretin is always or almost always going to be my go-to when it comes to systematic theology. Uh, the persons in the Trinity are distinguished by personal properties. And this is how we know uh, that they are individual persons. Uh, this is one way. Uh, we believe that God is simple. It's called the simplicity of God. Uh, God is without parts or composition. You cannot divide God. God is God. All that is in God is God. And so you cannot uh, divide his properties from his uh, being. But even confessing that, that God is simple, he cannot be divided, we also confess that uh, there are three persons. So these persons are not a division of God. They are God. And the three persons are solely defined by their personal properties. Uh, There is no hierarchy in the Trinity. Uh, The Father is not greater than the Son. Uh, The Son is not greater than the Spirit. No singular person of the Trinity is greater than another. Uh, All three persons are equal and co-eternal and share the same essence. Now uh, this does hit on another uh, heresy that has actually come up recently. Uh, I'm not going to say it's a new heresy because it has roots in old heresies, but it is new in the way it was formulated and it has very much influenced Reformed and Evangelical churches. And that is the heresy of the eternal uh, functional subordination of Christ. EFS is what it's uh, referred to. Or you may see the Eternal subordination of the Son, ESS. So EFS, ESS, um, and that is this heresy that not only was Christ in his humiliation, that is when he took on flesh, not only was Christ in his humiliation subordinate to the Father, but that Christ pre-incarnate, that the second person of the Trinity pre-incarnate was subordinate to the Father. Um, And this is a denial of the co-equality of the persons of the Godhead. Um, The second person of the Trinity was not subordinate to the Father prior to his humiliation. And in his exaltation, the second person of the Trinity is not subordinate to the Father. He humbled himself, took on the form of a servant, and submitted himself to the Father in his humiliation. But that is it. Uh, And so uh, you will run across, uh, if you read Reformed and Evangelical literature, you'll run across some men who teach EFS, ESS doctrine. Uh, One of such is uh, Bruce Ware. Um, Another would be Wayne Grudem. Oh yeah. He was involved in this church world. Oh. Way back, yeah, you know, many years ago. But, uh, 
um, several people involved in the Federal Vision movement have bought into this as well. Um, and so just, just beware of that. Um, now, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, I wouldn't go as far as to make a judgment call in regards to whether or not these men are heretics. But they are espousing a heresy. Um, I believe it's the role of the church to try men uh, and, and deem them guilty or not. Um, but just just be aware that these men are teaching this false doctrine. So what are uh, the personal properties? What are the persons of the Trinity? We've already spoken a little bit on each of the persons. Uh, but now let's look at each of the person's personal properties. So first we have God the Father. And His personal property is that he is unbegotten. He is unbegotten. The Father is neither begotten nor proceeding. And then we have God the Son. And his personal property is that he is eternally begotten of the Father. John 1.14 uh, John 1.18 and Hebrews 1.3 all speak to this fact. Now that does not mean that Jesus Christ in, in His incarnated form uh, was, was eternally uh, born or co- eternally conceived or anything like that. Uh, eternally begotten is different than Christ's incarnation. Christ is eternally begotten, um, and I say Christ recognizing his mediatorial role uh, even prior to his incarnation. Uh, But the second person of the Godhead, the Son, was eternally begotten. Uh, and then we have God the Holy Spirit in His personal property is that He is eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. And we see that in John fifteen twenty six and Galatians four verse six. Uh, so there's not a point at which they did not exist. No. The word eternally helps define that. But I think it's important to say that. Yeah, there, there is never a point in which the Father, Son, or Holy Spirit did not exist. They are all co-eternal and equal. Uh, also, is it important to say that the Holy Ghost proceeds from both the Father and the Son? Yes, because Scripture teaches that. Uh, let's look at these two passages. John fifteen twenty six. Um, but when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, uh, he shall testify of me. So we see that the sending of the Spirit comes from Christ. And he proceeds from the Father. And then Galatians 4, 6. Um, and because ye are sons, God hath sent his, uh, the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And so we see there that it is the Spirit of Christ. So it is the Spirit proceeding from Christ. It is the Spirit of Christ Himself. Um, and so um, we'll briefly touch on the great schism uh, when we get to our section, our lesson on church history. Um, but this 
this question of does the Spirit proceed from the Father and the Son or just from the Father? It's uh, one of the main causes of the uh, great schism that happened between the East and the West Church. Um, So the Western Church, which we come from that lineage, believed in the procession of the Spirit from the Son as well. Um, And this was codified in the creedal uh, language, uh, specifically the filioque clause, uh, meaning uh, of the Son. But the Eastern Church, the Greek Church, if you will, um, they did not uh, confess the filioque clause in the creedal statements. They denied the Spirit's procession from the Son. And uh, I, would, I would say, uh, at the very least, that is a grave error. Uh, it is a denial of uh, one of the personal properties of the Holy Ghost himself. Uh, at worst, it is heresy. Um, and many, uh, many Christians throughout history have understood a denial of the procession of the Spirit from the Son as heresy. Um, it is a core essential doctrine uh, for us to understand how the Spirit actually operates. And uh, in, in, in understanding who the Spirit is, so yeah, I would say that it is important to uh, believe that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. All right. So, uh, looking at our Confession of Faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter Two, Paragraph Three, we get our uh, confessional statement. On the doctrine of the Trinity. In the unity of the Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father the Holy Ghost eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. And you see there, uh, once again, that even within our confessional documents, we affirm uh, these personal properties of the Trinity, uh, of the three persons of the Godhead. And this language is the same language and doctrine of the Nicene Creed's Trinitarian theology. And so this puts us in lockstep with the true Catholic Church. Not the Roman Church, but the true historic universal church. So those are the... uh, That's the doctrine of the Trinity and uh, the personal properties of each member of the Godhead, each person of the Godhead. So what are the attributes of God? Uh, Westminster Larger Catechism, question 7 asks, What is God? And the answer, God is a spirit in and of himself infinite in being, glory, blessedness, and perfection, all-sufficient, eternal, unchangeable, incomprehensible, everywhere present, almighty, knowing all things, most wise, most holy, most just, most merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth. And so there we are given a list of the attributes 
of God. And this list is not uh, comprehensive. Um, I'm sure you can go through Scripture and, and list out other attributes of God. But this is a good summary uh, which hits the, the attributes of God. But notice that the question is, what is God? And then the divines, the Westminster divines, they answer by saying God is a spirit and here is a list of His attributes. And that's because they understand or they understood that all that is in God is God. That you cannot separate God from His attributes. That His attributes make up who He is. They are part and parcel to Him. Although, they, although He has no parts. They, they, are, they are of the essence of who God is. God is not God without these attributes. You take any of these attributes away and God ceases to be God. Think about it. Can God be God if He is not infinite in being? Can He be God if He is not infinite in glory? Can He be God if He is not infinite in blessedness and perfection? Can He be God if He is not all-sufficient, eternal, unchangeable, incomprehensible, everywhere present, almighty, knowing all things, most wise, most holy, most just, most merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. Can you take any of those away and still have God? Absolutely not. And so that's why when asked, what is God? We confess God's attributes. Because they express precisely who God is. So now moving on uh, to specifically looking at what we confess about uh, the second person of the Trinity, and that is Jesus Christ, the mediator. The eternal Son of God, the second person of the Godhead, was incarnated. It means he took on flesh, he became a human. We read this in John 1. We read about it in uh, Philippians, where Paul speaks of the humiliation of Christ, that he took on the form of a servant. The person of Jesus Christ is the person of the Son of God. They are the same person. The eternal Son of God took on human flesh and was called by the name Jesus Christ and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father on high. And that is the same person. There is now an eternal hypostatic union between the divine and human natures of Jesus Christ. Hypostatic union. That's a fancy term. Uh, a hypostasis is where uh, two things are, are living together in unity, in harmony. Um, there is not a, uh, a fusion of Christ's divine and human natures. And that needs to be understood. The, the two natures are not fused. 
so as to become one. But they are also not to be understood as so divided as to uh, make Christ into two separate persons. His divine nature and His human nature are coexistent in a hypostasis, a hypostatic union within the one person, Jesus Christ. Now that's important, uh, especially when looking at church history, that understanding is important because heretics arose that taught that Christ uh, had a fusion of his two natures uh, so that he only had one nature, some sort of divine human nature. Um, There were other heretics who said that uh, Christ was two persons, the human and the divine, and so they could speak of the divine person of Christ and the human person of Christ. Um, That was uh, Nestorius. Uh, Nestorianism uh, held to the the splitting of of the two natures, the two uh, natures of Christ and making him two persons within one uh, body, essentially. Um, and, and this is uh, one of the reasons, now there are many, but this is one of the reasons why we do not have these false purported images of Christ. It's uh, so why we don't have paintings or sculptures of a depiction of Christ you know, you'll have some people who will justify those things by saying we're just depicting his human nature. But that is practical Nestorianism because they are dividing his human nature from his divine nature, something which cannot be done. They are rending Christ in two, tearing him in two, making him into two people, saying we can depict his human nature. That's Nestorianism. And so uh, that is one reason why we do not have those things. Um, Obviously, there are other reasons, the second commandment being the primary one. But that's just one example of how, while the the heresy itself seems to have died off, uh, I don't know of any major groups that teach it, the practical uh, heresy lives on, even within Reformed churches. I know of Reformed pastors who have used that excuse to justify having images of Christ. And that's practical Nestorianism. Um, And so we, we have to reject those notions, both the notion of fusion and of absolute separation of the two natures of Christ. Uh, there, there is a hypostatic union of the divine and human natures, and that is required so that he could be the only mediator between God and man. If you, if you mess with the natures of Christ, you mess with his ability to be able to be your savior. If he, if he is not human, if he is not fully human, then he cannot uh, be your representative before God. And if he is not fully God, he cannot bear your sins on your behalf. Do you see how this is a gospel issue? Bob, you were going to say something? I was going to say, if we... Christ, it affects his ability to save us. And I just come we don't want to do that. <laughs> so it's important uh, that we understand this. Mm. 
So you, you see how a right understanding of the two natures of Christ is a gospel issue. It's not just something that theologians think about in their spare time or that they sit in their ivory tower at the university while writing their Ph.D. dissertation. This matters to you. Because if you don't have a right understanding of this, then you don't have a right understanding of the work of Christ, who He is, and what He did for you in saving you. But even knowing that, even knowing this truth, uh, that, that the human and divine are, are uh, in a hypostatic union, uh, we, we have to understand that the divine nature of God is not changed. The human nature of Christ does not in any way affect His divine nature. It doesn't taint it. It doesn't make it less divine. He is still fully God while He is fully human. And that's hard for us to wrap our minds around as well. I said, you know, part of the reason why uh, some churches don't teach the doctrine of the Trinity is because it's kind of hard to grasp. We'll try to grasp the idea of having two natures and how they work together within the same person. <laughs> we have no concept of that. Like, we have no understanding of that other than how it's revealed in the scriptures. But we know that it's true. And so we must teach it. Even though it's a hard truth, we have to teach it. But this, this hypostatic union, it's not only necessary for Christ uh, in His life and in His death, it's necessary in His resurrection, ascension, and session as well. If, God is not, if Christ is not the God-man, then none of this could have happened. And so as the God-man, Jesus Christ now reign, rules and reigns over all things for the sake of His church. Ephesians 1.22 This is the, the mediatorial dominion of Christ. And it is only possible as the God-man. As the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity, uh, Christ uh, obviously had possession of all things. He ruled over all things as the second person of the Trinity because of who we, He is as God. That's called His essential kingship. That that kingship which is part of his essence. But what we're talking about here is his mediatorial kingship. That kingship which is given unto him as mediator, as the God-man. Uh, all things in heaven and on earth, uh, or all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me, says Christ. That authority is a delegated authority from the Father to the God-man, Christ Jesus, to rule and reign as a mediator. And He does it for the sake of His church. Uh, many will argue that Ephesians 1.22 uh, says, is saying that Christ... Uh, rules and reigns over the church. And we agree with that. Christ does rule and reign over the church. He is the mediatorial king over the church. But Ephesians 1 says that Christ rules and reigns over all things. That all things will be made His footstool. And He does all for the sake of of his church. Now there's a difference there. 
Yes, He rules over His church. But He rules over all other things as well for the sake of His church. All things are ruled over Christ in order to benefit His bride. And so when we speak of uh, kings and princes and governors and presidents and countries and states bending the knee to King Jesus and covenanting themselves with Him, it's because they already are in, are in subjection to Him. They have to recognize it and submit to that subjection. They are to kiss the Son. And as a covenanted uh, magistrate, as a covenanted nation, as a nation or magistrate which recognizes their subjection to King Jesus, what is their duty? Scripture says that kings shall be your nursing fathers and queens your nursing mothers. That's the responsibility of the magistrate. Um, and that's what it means that King Jesus is mediator over all things for the sake of the church. That all things in rightful recognition and submission to the subjection they have under Christ as mediatorial king ought to operate with the express intent of being nursing fathers and mothers to the church, protecting it, preserving it, and promoting it. So that's what Ephesians 1.22 means. And that is Christ in His role now as mediatorial king. Confession of Faith, chapter 8, paragraph 1. It pleased God in His eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, His only begotten Son, to be the mediator between God and man. Uh, prophet, uh, the prophet, priest, and king, the head and Savior of His church, the heir of all things and judge of the world, unto whom He did from eternity give a people to be His seed and to be by Him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. In paragraph 2, the Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, being very and eternal God of one substance and equal with the Father, did with, uh, when the fullness of time was come take upon Him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary, of her substance, so that the two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion. Which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man, it's important for us to understand those paragraphs. So what is meant by this phrase without conversion, composition, or confusion? Because that is important to understanding the two natures of Christ. Without conversion uh, means that divinity did not become humanity, nor did humanity become Divinity, uh, that is, that uh, tainting of, of the natures. 
no composition. No new kind of being was made. Uh, some hybrid God-man uh, creature. That is the uh, fusion, the, the blending together, making a half-divine, half-human person. And no confusion, the two natures are not to be confused. You cannot attribute to his divine what is uh, only attributed to his humanity. And you cannot attribute to his humanity only that which is attributed to the divine. Um, An example of that would be the Lutherans in their doctrine of the Lord's Supper. They confuse the two natures of Christ, attributing to his human nature, his incarnated state, the divine property of uh, omnipresence. They say that Christ is physically present in, with, under, and throughout the elements of bread and wine. And that is impossible. Where is Christ physically present? Where is Christ physically present? The right hand of God the Father Almighty. Can He be physically present anywhere else other than the right hand of God the Father Almighty? No. Because his physical, corporeal body still has a human nature. And it cannot uh, have divine properties given to it. Now is Christ present here among us today? Yes. Christ is present here among us today spiritually because as the divine second person of the trinity he is omnipresent because that is an essential property characteristic attribute of God So you see how the Lutherans confuse the two. They attribute to the human nature that which can only be attributed to the divine. And we confess one Christ, not two persons. We confess one person, one Christ of infinite value, for he is God. This doctrine, the doctrine of the Trinity and of Christ the Mediator always has its effect upon our preaching and our ministry. Everything that is taught here comes from these foundational doctrines. Everything that we believe is rooted in these foundational doctrines. If you do not believe in one God, in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, then you are not a Christian. Because this is so foundational to what makes Christianity, Christianity. Yeah, uh, even even more of a clarification. Not not necessarily understand. I think understanding can come in varying different levels. You don't have to comprehend it. Okay. Meaning, understand it in its entirety, fully. I would I would argue we cannot comprehend it because we are finite and God is infinite. Because we are the creature and He is the Creator. 
we cannot fully grasp every aspect of this doctrine. But you have to know it to be true. You have to know it is taught in the scriptures. Uh, when if you if you take upon yourself the covenant of communicant membership, or if you're already a communicant member, you have you have uh, vowed or you will vow that you uphold this. You will have to affirm the query: Do you believe in one living and true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as revealed in the Scriptures? That is what is necessary. And it can be as simple as that. And that's all the understanding of it that you have. But you have to have that understanding. We believe and confess one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Ephesians 4, verses 5 and 6. This is our confession. This is what makes us Christians distinct from the cults, from the heretics, from the false religions. Without this, we are nothing. Questions, comments, Bob? So as we make this vow, this query, as we answer this query, the thing we need to make sure we're understanding is we're also saying, I want to obey this God. So as we will look in the book of uh, Joshua, that's, it, that's the question Joshua asked. Mm. Whom will you serve? Whom will you serve? And he gives, and we're not going to study it this week, this thing. I've divided it up. It's, it's just it's nice to meet there. Um, and he asks, who will you serve? Will you serve these gods? These gods or the one true living God? And you sit back and go, well, that's a silly question, isn't it? That, to me, that's the point. It's a silly question. But we all, we, many of us answer, no, I'm going to serve this, the, the, the God of... Uh, uh, riches, and let's serve the God of beauty, and let's serve the God of whatever. And we make a Faustian bargain with our lives. And we head off um, in the wrong direction. Many do that, not us. So, as we ask this, we don't say this. And I, I worked on these vows for quite a while as a member of you know, people in the part of We ask for obedience to Who do, Whom do you serve? Whom will you serve? So that's, in a sense, the ultimate question here. Whom will you serve? I guess also with this query, it shows us what man is. When we speak about God, about all the attributes. There you go. Man isn't those things, but we know ourselves in relation to who God is. Mm. It's very foundational. Mm -hmm. Is there a week uh, where we can spend time talking about man? man is not not in detail um, I mean we talk about uh, salvation so we hit on some aspects of who man is but we don't get into detail uh, the doctrine of man um, we did talk a bit about it in our uh, understanding biblical doctrines workbook uh, but there's not a week in this where we talk about the doctrine of man because what this class is this class is laid out to where the lessons are are based off of what the query is um, and we do not have a query where we uh, take a take a vow uh, concerning what we believe about man. Um, I mean, I guess you could argue that uh, 
the query concerning uh, submission to the doctrine and teaching of the church, doctrine and government of the church, uh, that it would fall under there, but so would every other doctrine, because that's where we get into uh, submitting to the teaching of the Westminster Confession, Reformed Presbyterian Testimony. So uh, you could argue that it would fall under there, but so would you know, 33 chapters worth of a confession of faith. I guess also in the process of these queries, we're submitting ourselves to like, the teaching that we, what we understand God to be, what we understand the church to be. Mm-hmm. So in some ways, we're the best as we are uh, when we make those vows. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Any other questions or comments concerning what we confess about God? Longer discussion than what we've got time for. Yeah. Okay. You know, around and around. Just okay. me, just me, the doors. Many people call it that way. Plans, it has to be Christians, they don't, they don't believe. It has possible people believe only one person. If this dies, the others are part of the God, it's still Christianity. Is it possible that someone can believe one, so, so not Trinity, but uh, um, oneness ideology, can, can they still be Christian? Is it possible? Um, I need to tread lightly here. Um, is it possible... Kinda. Uh, be, and I say that uh, because what saves you is faith in Christ, which is given by God as a gift of the Spirit. You can be saved and still have errant theology. Um, so that is like, the, the theological answer to your question. Would I, would I uh, as a minister of Christ's church, one to whom uh, the keys of the key, kingdom have been invest, uh, invested into, would I accept them as a Christian? No. If someone were, so let's say we had a visitor who was here on Communion Sunday and they wanted to take communion with us and we interviewed them and we asked them who is God and they gave us a oneness answer. We would not admit them to the table because we, we do not believe that they are Christians. Um, now, it may take some digging to figure out whether or not they actually believe that oneness doctrine or if they just were taught poorly. And this happened to me with a friend back in Alabama. We were talking about the doctrine of the Trinity and she used like this analogy to talk about the Trinity. And I was like, whoa, whoa, that is heresy. That's modalism. And had to explain to her that you cannot make an analogous uh, comparison with the Trinity to anything. And so it wasn't that she was actually a heretic. She didn't actually believe in modalism. She just heard this analogy one day, thought that it sounded neat, and use that in, in, in our discussion about the Trinity. Uh, so, you know, more, more discussion, more, more digging may need to take place. But if someone comes in here and they believe in oneness theology, 
they, they will not be accepted here as a Christian. That's not to say we don't welcome them here, love for them to be here. They will not sit at the Lord's table. They will not partake of the elements. They will not become church members because they are not Christians. They need to embrace Christianity. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Like, there's a difference between embracing heretical theology and accidentally speaking heretical theology. Heretics embrace it. Christians can accidentally say it. And I think that's an important distinction. We've all at times misspoken before. And I'm thankful that, you know, I didn't do it in the Old Testament days because very likely I could have been stoned many times throughout my life. (laughs) We've all misspoken before and said things in a bad way. So we try to love it. Mm-hmm. We don't slap them down, at least not at first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, we will pick up next week with what we confess about salvation. Uh, just, just to forewarn you, next week is a long lesson. It should be a familiar one, though. Uh, Please remember next week as we go through the lesson to uh, save your questions and comments for discussion at the end. Uh, I really want to get through the whole lesson in one week. And please look over it during the week uh, leading up to to next Lord's Day. Uh, That way you're familiar with it. You can go ahead and write down questions you may have. And uh, that way we we can better focus our time. All right. Well, uh, Roman, can I get you to close us in prayer? Dear Lord, we thank you for uh, waking us all up and bringing us here today. Pray that we would glorify you in our opening worship and our contemplation of our doctrines and our worship praise that we have just had in our fellowship following our uh, worship service. And pray for this fruitful contemplation throughout the entire Lord's Day, as well as uh, safe travels home for all of us here. Praise the Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.